Welcome to our Melanin Hughes podcast. We are women of color who are physicians and psychologists empowering our communities through candid conversations about their physical and emotional health. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Eunice Blackman. Hi, and I'm Dr. Kenesha Campbell. Hi, Dr. Leela Morrow. Hi, Dr. Chanel Richards. Welcome back, ladies. It's great to see everyone. How are you all doing today? Pretty good. I'm doing well. good. Real good. Great. There's been a lot going on in the world, a lot going on, you know, with the federal government, lots of drama, a lot going on, you know, still, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Recently, we all know that the Pfizer vaccine was approved for uh, children from ages 5 to 11. So that's exciting news. Um, and we're one step closer to really moving things forward uh, with this pandemic and hopefully getting rid of it, uh, ideally. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Super excited. We're getting our first dose today. So I think the kids are excited. We're excited as a family to move one step forward, as you said, Kanisha. And I have definitely been excited. My son got his first dose about two days ago and has been doing well. So I think it'll be very great for all students moving forward for those who can and and do get vaccinated. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the end of this pandemic. So whatever we need to get done to protect and safeguard our friends and family, you know, I'm all for. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I definitely we know that uh, everyone's not excited about uh, the kids being vaccinated. That was, you know, a lot of news stories have been going on around around this and only about like a third to a half of parents said they're going to get their kids vaccinated, which I guess isn't surprising. But at least I think as many as uh, can get their kids vaccinated, it will still help us to move forward. So I think we just have to do our part as kind of healthcare providers to really be kind of proponents that that folks get their kids vaccinated as, as um, much as possible. All right. So, you know, today we actually wanted to focus on the mental health crisis uh, that's really been caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, some are calling it an actual mental health pandemic, you know, that's coinciding with COVID-19. So it's it's definitely really serious uh, what's happening in this country with uh, both adults and uh, children and adolescents. So recently, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, maybe only about a few weeks ago, uh, put out an article that really declared a national emergency on children's and adolescents' mental health. Uh, This was done in conjunction with the Children's Hospital Association and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Uh, So those are two very large organizations that really take care of kids and really put forth a lot of the policy statements around kind of what happens with children and adolescents. Uh, It's definitely been something that I've seen a ton in my practice and that I continue to see uh, in my practice, kind of, you know, the emergency departments and in the hospitals as well. Is that something that you all have been seeing kind of what, you know, in your practices as well? Yeah, for sure. In, in, in private practice, I've seen increases in depression, anxiety, substance abuse, which is, is all consistent with survey and CDC reports uh, from early last year. I primarily see a predominantly person of color you know, individuals of black and brown communities. And a lot of them have reached out for help, which is strikingly more so than they did prior to the pandemic. So that was an interesting phenomenon for me to see as well happen in real life. 
Yeah, and to that point in my private practice, Chanel, um, some of my old patients who I stopped seeing years ago contacted me again. And so I thought that was really interesting too, is that you know people were maybe more feeling more comfortable, more stabilized, but then the past two years have really wreaked havoc for them. And then in my hospital work, absolutely, Kanisha, all those points around increased suicidality, increase in self-injurious behavior, which has been really tough to work with as far as like when to refer them to the emergency department, what supports are in place, uh, a lot of anxiety around school, mm-hmm. return to school, school avoidance. So I would say that a large percentage of my patient population is struggling right now. And I totally agree um, with all the, what you ladies have said. I, I see a lot of kids um, who are becoming more irritable, um, clinging to their, clinging to their uh, families or caregivers just out of fear that, you know, they may not return because in, in, in my practice, some of my kids have seen, you know, parents or grandparents die from COVID. And so that fear of not being able to see them again has been real for them. That has caused them issues with sleeping and also having poor appetite. It's been, you know, a whirlwind of trying to figure out how to best help these kids, especially in this time of need, and just kind of, you know, wondering what's going to be the effects of COVID-19 as they go forward in their lives. Feel like you're almost helpless with these kids. You make a really good point, Eunice. I mean, I think, you know, people are always saying that, you know, children and adolescents haven't been impacted as much by the COVID-19 pandemic as adults and, you know, especially older adults. But just because they're not dying doesn't mean they're not impacted or dying as much doesn't mean they're not impacted by it. 140,000 children and adolescents have experienced a death of a primary or secondary caregiver during the pandemic. Um, and we know that children of color were disproportionately impacted by this. We also know that children of color and, you know, children in general, like have always had issues with mental health. So mental health is not definitely not something new that is just starting to impact them. You know, suicide was the second leading cause of death before the pandemic started for children and adolescents ages 10 to 24. But the issue is, of course, that the pandemic has worsened that. Um, and so now it's coming to everyone's attention, which is not good. But, it, you know, it's I think it's important that people actually understand how much our youth are impacted uh, by mental health issues. Similarly, with the adults, it's about the compounding of multiple stressors, right? Because with the pandemic comes, for some people, loss of job, loss of close family members and friends, decreased income, two-parent households dropping down to one or sometimes none. You have to go with the extended family. All these additional stressors, even to the, you know people who don't suffer from mental health issues, you know these became critical things for them, stressors that was so difficult to cope with that they found themselves going through bouts of depression or having heightened the anxiety to the point where it's crippling at times. So it's important to acknowledge that it's not necessarily just with people who suffer from severe mental illness, but the average person who ordinarily wouldn't necessarily have a bout of depression or significant depression have done so just as a result of these added stressors um, related to the pandemic itself. And also just think about Everything that happens, you see in the news. And so, you know, these kids, are families and adults as well are seeing everything in the news over and over and over. And so there's not that glimmer of, you know, when are we going to get to the other side that's coming anytime soon? So I, I can only imagine 
coming in day in and day out, seeing your family and friends pass away and then having to go listen to the staggering news on TV. So I can only imagine how that impacts families. Yeah, it's like this repeated exposure. Um, I think I mentioned this on one of our other episodes, like we're just living on edge. So if us as adults are doing that, imagine how our children and adolescents are feeling. So we as parents are modeling, you know, some of our behaviors and, and they're picking up on that. And the grief is real. You know, so many of my patients, if you really ask them, like, you know, has someone in your family had COVID? Have you had a loss? And I think that might end up being some standard questions that we may need to ask on interview for our families uh, Mm -hmm. just to check in because the grief can be prolonged. It can be complex. And certainly with our kids of color who are still fearful every day walking outside of their house. You know, last night I was just watching about the Ahmad Aubrey trial. And it's like re-experiencing everything that we went through and just seeing the mom cry because of that. So I can only imagine like the effects of COVID and then continued structural racism and how that impacts our children. Leela, that's so true. I'm glad you brought that up because I think we can't ignore the attack on racial justice that we've been experiencing, basically coinciding with the pandemic. Um, And I think that also has a lot to do with the mental health crisis is as severe as it is. So, I mean, you know, we have black and brown children already being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic because of structural racism. On top of that, then you have, you know, black people being killed left and right. And justice is not being served in, you know, many of these cases. And now we have to deal with the Ahmaud Arbery trial where they have almost all white jurors in that case. So, you know, it's just a lot, I think, for anyone to handle, but it's definitely a lot for the people who it's impacting directly to handle. I saw some reports that services for mental health weren't being utilized um, for a specific time, like they decreased by 50%. And we know that people didn't want to get out because of COVID and sometimes they didn't have the ability to do the telehealth. But what do you guys think about, um, I guess, do you are you seeing more people are coming to your office now to kind of use those services? Or do you still feel that there's a, you know, a percentage of people who aren't coming out to get the help that they need in terms of mental health? Yeah, Eunice, that's such a great point. I think the one glimmer of hope that I see is on my telehealth days, I am full, like full mm-hmm. to the max. Mm-hmm. Because people really want to optimize on the use of technology, making sure that, you know, for parents, making sure their child is talking to someone about all of their concerns. So I think, you know, there are some statistics going out, like to your point about access to internet, access to telehealth. But overall, I would say that if anything lasts through this pandemic, I hope that it can be telehealth, particularly to address the mental health needs of our kids. I completely agree with you, Lila. I actually switched my private practice from in-person to solely online telehealth, teletherapy-based. And it has been, you know, I've gotten feedback from clients that it's, you know, initially they were like, oh, well, this is kind of weird. And then they were like, no, I really like it. It's so convenient. It eliminates the time I have to get dressed to get down there. You can address, you know, have no excuse during the day to like take their lunch break and actually decompress and they could have a session to help them cope. And so they found it to be so much more convenient for them. And in particularly with with black and brown clients, right? You know, there's a stigma associated with it. And so a lot of the time they appreciate having the ability to do it literally in a private realm where they literally don't have to get out 
and show their faces elsewhere in person. And so telehealth is literally here to stay because it's it's one of convenience for both the practitioner and the patient as well. And I know that here, some of the school-based centers have increased, put more social workers to kind of help out with uh, some of this training. So that that has also been good. And I know during, all the, during the COVID times, you know, there was a decrease in some of those admissions because some of those psychiatric beds had to be used for other things, for medical needs. So I'm hopeful as well. So I'll say that I have a little bit different experience than you guys. I mean, I agree that telehealth is amazing and a wonderful resource that a lot of our families are using, but there's still a lot of families who aren't using it. And I'll say as someone who only takes care of adolescents, many of my adolescent patients refuse to use telehealth for therapy. The therapists or like I have a lot of eating disorder patients, if they don't have, you know, intensive outpatient in person, then they're not doing it. You know, for some people, I think depending on the actual issue that they're having and also depending on if they feel like establishing kind of mental health relationship is possible or not during, you know, online, basically, they may decide not to do it. So I think, you know, I think there are different segments of the population in general. It's great. But I mean, in my, in my even in my primary care clinic that's in West Philadelphia, the uptake of telehealth is extremely low those patients and families don't want to use it. And I think a lot of research, really some research needs to happen in terms of like why they're not, they're not using it and how we can kind of bridge those gaps uh, so that they can kind of use it and get the experience that you guys are talking about that other patients may be experiencing. So it's good for some, but it's not good for all for various reasons that we need to, we really need to figure out. But something I actually was uh, surprised about, which I think Chanel, you mentioned something about this, so kind of a leadership training program a few weeks ago. And one of the psychiatrists who is the you know, chief of psychiatry at an institution basically said that black males, there's like studies out or data that's showing now that black males have increased um, kind of their uptake of mental health because of telehealth, which is um, kind of similar to what you were just saying, which I, I thought was a surprise, but it's kind of not surprised once she, once she actually like talked about it. I guess it makes complete sense if you're if it's something that's stigmatized. You, you don't want to go into the doctor's office like and have, have people see you or say you're going, but you can kind of like have your telehealth session in secret. So I thought that's great. So that's that is a way that telehealth has definitely like expanded access for kind of I guess not necessarily populations. marginalized populations, but certain populations that may not have you know been okay with getting access before. I mean, you bring up a valid point in that, you know, most of my clients are more higher functioning and able-bodied. So definitely that may be at least one dependent on on whether or not they utilize these services or not. Yeah. And also what you were saying, Kanisha, about, you know, people's preferences. We know that the research shows when you are working with somebody who looks like you, you're more willing to engage, whether that's in medicine or therapy. And so to address this point, something that I'm so passionate about is bringing in more students of color to be psychologists. Mm -hmm. And the shortage, if we're seeing this uptake in Black men and Black boys wanting therapy, then we need more Black men being therapists. So Mm -hmm. um, it's very limited. I get a lot of requests like, who can you refer me to? And I have like two people in Philadelphia, which is a city comprised of almost 50% Black. And that's a real struggle. So I think, you know, at least at our university and medical school, you know, Kanisha knows this, like interviewing for students, people who are really wanting to work with communities of color, whether you're white or not, 
but we really, really need to recruit more professionals in our field. Agree. Completely agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely. And we're doing a lot of work. I think a lot of at least academic institutions now realize, are realizing that more and are doing a lot of work to get people involved in the recruitment, retention and promotion process that really are going to use kind of best practices to ensure that they're casting a wide net and actually marketing to people that will actually increase the diversity in their institution. So it's something that I think we're spending a lot of time and um, resources on right now. I mean, and I think across the board, there's a true shortage of mental health providers. And so even if you're not going to go to school to be a psychologist, you know, consider joining another mental health profession, you know, LPCs, LCSWs, all of those licensed clinical social worker, licensed professional counseling. I mean, you don't need to go to a five-year graduate program or five-plus year. You can absolutely do it, you know, with a few years of training. Um, and I think some of our guests have attested to that, that, you know, they can really help communities of color. So to our listeners out there, that's my plug to you all of get involved in the field. For sure. We also need more um, psychiatrists that are people of color because, you know, trust factors in taking medication play a significant role. So if you have people that look like you, you know, just exactly what you said, Leela, in total agreement, it's, it's much better. They're also very rare. And more medical doctors, let's be kind of clear on that because um, we're the ones referring for behavioral health and we're, and we do a lot of behavioral health and a lot of primary care doctors so are connected and prescribing, yeah. You know, yeah, prescribing antidepressants and, and anti-anxiety medicines and all that, and all that other stuff. So I think all the way across, we need Absolutely. social workers, it doesn't matter, everybody, nurses, <laughs> like we need um, people who understand communities of color understand social determinants of health and are going to really incorporate that into kind of how they approach patient care and take care of patients. Absolutely. We need all of those things to confront the effects of COVID-19 on, you know, families' mental health. So, you know, I was just going to pose a question to everybody in terms of what kind of specific issues are we seeing amongst our patients since the pandemic? Like for me in particular, I'm seeing a lot more people having issues with substance use and domestic violence, uh, which results in a lot of people requesting couples counseling and family therapy as well. A significant increase in family therapy and, count, and, and couples counseling requests. It's just I mean, going to come accommodate me, people because of that. For me, it's been more of kids getting tossed out of class or out of school because of angry outbursts. You know, maybe they're fighting, maybe they're being more defiant and they didn't probably have this issue last year. Or maybe they did, but now it's even worse in terms of, you know, what can we do to keep them in school so they can get their education without them, without having their school being disrupted so much. That's what I've been seeing, I think, latest the past couple of months of just talking with parents, you know, walking through with them like, hey, do they have a behavioral plan in place at school? You know, has the therapist been working on you, working with you for some of this behavior that's come up? Have you guys discussed it with the therapist? So that's what I've been seeing that's come out a lot from the more recent months. You know, interestingly for me, I think Eunice, you brought this point up, sleep issues around sleep. So children being more afraid to go to sleep, a lot more separation anxiety. Um, I work with kids also with complex medical conditions. And so not only are they adjusting to you know, being out in the environment because, you know, even if you're vaccinated, uh, there's still a risk of getting COVID. So I think parents are overly cautious. 
And so coming in for like doctor's appointments and, you know, just to meet with the team, they're keeping their kids at home. And so like a lot of families that I'm working with decided to send their kids to like a virtual school program. So now we're talking about what what are the goals to get that child back if you want, or some kids are thriving. So like the same way we talked about telehealth, maybe for some of our kids who are highly anxious, it might be a safer place for them. And I've never thought about it that way, but that was really interesting around the school issue. So if they can sleep in until eight o'clock and then log on, maybe they're able to cope better. But I don't know, that's just something that is really a hard decision to make, whether you decide to go back in person or or stick with the first school. Yeah, for me, I think, um, so I see kids, adolescents pretty much primarily, in primary care setting, in the subspecialty care setting, and in an inpatient setting. And so I'd say overall, we know that, you know, rates of kind of depression, anxiety, Chanel was talking about trauma, loneliness, suicidality, all those things are increasing. So all the way across the board. And so on the primary care side, you're seeing a lot of kind of depression, anxiety in, in a lot of the adolescent populations that comes out is like behavioral problems and anger and irritability. So we're seeing a lot of that as we always have, but we're seeing a lot more. On the subspecialty side, I see a lot of kids with eating disorders and the rates of eating disorders have skyrocketed from the beginning of the pandemic all the way through now, uh, getting a ton of new patients, a ton of very sick children. Like you were saying before, Leela, kids who were stable before now have relapsed. And so the eating disorder issue is out of control. They're also like packing the hospitals, lots and lots of patients, almost all of our patients that are inpatient now are eating disorder. Um, It's a lot of eating disorder patients. Um, So it's something that, especially in black and brown communities, people are not, don't really understand well. And a lot of the diagnoses are missed, but they are definitely prevalent in all communities, regardless of the color of someone's skin. And then a ton of, you know, suicidality. So lots of overdoses and various other suicide attempts. We're jam-packing kind of the emergency departments and kind of inpatient units and, of course, psychiatric programs across the country as well. So, I mean, it really is a crisis right now. So we definitely need to start thinking about kind of what we can do to address it. So what do you guys think? Like, so I think, you know, we always want to talk about something positive. (laughs) on the podcast. So what are some kind of strategies that you all feel we can, you know, we meaning policymakers, you know, uh, hospitals, healthcare providers, schools kind of can use to really try to mitigate some of what's going on and really address the mental health crisis head on? I think in part, you know, I was thinking about this, maybe doing some more outreach so that, you know, in communities that I feel would benefit from more psychoeducation and um, the signs on when when it's time to like reach out for professional help, when it's time to talk to your PCP about certain things or when it's time to talk to a professional as opposed to trying to deal with things on their own. So I think more education or outreach in the areas that have not been tapped yet or, you know, the underserved populations need to have access to, because sometimes it's just about not knowing, right? Like not knowing, oh, I could see the doctor via Zoom or I could see them on the phone. How do I go about doing that? All of that is an educational process. Like if you don't know how to do those things, um, you're less likely to do it, right? And if you're figuring in your head, the only way that I can go to the doctor is just like, I have to get up and go and I'm sick already and they're not really going to do much for me, blah, blah, blah. You, you have to learn how to utilize these things. 
So I think some education across the board is definitely warranted, at least as a precursor step. I definitely agree with that. I I know for me, myself, just um, realizing that sometimes you are that advocate for the family. So getting in there, helping them, you know, come up with ways to making sure that the academics are not getting left behind, you know, making suggestions if they haven't heard about, hey, you know, they can have a 504 plan or an IEP plan and, you know, sitting down, talking to the parents about how to get it done and connecting them with people in the community that can help them. For us, just as as physicians, just recognizing that, you know what, it's it's just not this medical piece that I have to worry about, but I have to understand what's going on with my patient mentally to help them. And then educate myself on what's available in the community so I can make those referrals for my families to get them better help and more help that they may need. Yeah, those are great points. I think also to to add in terms of advocacy, really talking to insurance companies around things like access to mental health, uh, telehealth practices, paying for those services. So if we're in the crisis, the same way that like you can get your vaccine free of charge, then insurance companies should provide, you know, a set amount of sessions at least um, because we need to screen screen for suicide. And I think that is my biggest concern through the pandemic is like, Suicide is like the silent pandemic. I've heard of a few suicides um, within the community, whether it's been um, adolescents or parents. And there's so much shame and grief that people don't want to talk about it. So I absolutely think we can implement quick screening practices to make sure that the parent is aware if that child is experiencing suicidal ideation. I'll bring up the article that I mentioned earlier. So um, they had some, I think, more public health types of strategies uh, to really approach this mental health crisis from a public health standpoint. So a few of the things we mentioned already, but, you know, Lily, you talked about ensuring that uh, basically families get access to mental health services. So we know they need it, but we need to make sure they can actually afford it and their insurance covers it. So one of the strategies is really to increase federal funding because we know that a lot of the people that cannot access these services are poor people, people who are on Medicaid or Medicare. So it's really important that all of these patients and families have access to these services. We talk about school kind of based health and really supporting kind of effective models of school based mental health care. You know, many school systems have some type of medical care within the system or a school psychologist or school counselor or something like that, but really working on effective models of care in the schools to meet, you know, really reach the children and adolescents where they are. And then other things were just about, you know, making sure that community-based systems are fully funded, that we're promoting and paying for trauma-informed care services. You know, a lot of that also has to do with the education we're talking about in terms of making sure that providers are educated about this. Providers know the questions to ask. We're actually implementing, you know, standard screening practices in our clinics, our practices to ensure that we're not missing anything. And if you screen, of course, you always have to make sure that you can treat. So it kind of goes hand in hand with making sure that we have access to services once once someone screens positive. And then the last thing I'll mention that's on the list is advancing policies that ensure compliance with mental health parity laws. So just making sure that everyone really has true access to mental health care across the board, regardless of their ability to pay, um, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of where they live. So um, those are some of the actions that they kind of were urging policymakers to make. 
So yeah, those are excellent suggestions. And I think we need to, you know, as mental health advocates, as we all are, is to make the difference to keep this going, keep these conversations going in our community. This has been a lovely, lovely conversation. I think it's so very important. Um, so again, to our listeners out there, we hope that you can take away something that we said and, and take some action. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. It's so wonderful to really be able to discuss this very, very important topic and really, you know, increase awareness about it. Thank you all again for joining us today. So you can definitely always follow us at Melanin Hughes Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can go to our website, www.melaninhughespodcast.com. Thanks for listening.